Hey, thanks for being here tonight. We're going to have a lot of fun tonight. We're going to um, spend the whole evening talking about the book of Revelation. Okay, so how many of y'all read in the book of Revelation today? There's one guy, he's in my summit group, he had to do that. Okay, um, anybody? How many of y'all feel like, hey, I have got the book of Revelation down? Okay, see, that would be kind of my same nervous laughter as well. Because you thought, hey, if I say that I've got it mastered, he may call me up here and ask me questions or something. Or let you teach some of the class. Okay, but um, I'm here to tell you that Revelation is a book that you can understand. And so my goal tonight is to do just that. And we're going to be in the Bible a lot tonight, okay? We're going to spend some time in Daniel, and then we're going to spend some time in the book of Revelation going through chapter by chapter so I can kind of give you the basic idea of, hey, this is what's going on in each chapter. Now, I've got, uh, um, well, I had an hour and a half. Now I've got an hour and 29 minutes. Um, and so I don't have much time to spend on each chapter, but I like nothing more than talking about the book of Revelation, the end times, and that sort of thing. And so I'm inviting you, if you have questions about that, stick around afterwards, and I'll stay here as long as uh, there are people asking questions. Or feel free to email me, and we'll meet at Watermark Coffee or something, and uh, have a chance to answer the questions you have. Okay, because why do we study history? History. Why do we study prophecy? That's what I'm trying to say. Why do we study the book of Revelation? What does it do for us? Encouragement. Encouragement. Yeah, it gives us hope. It gives us hope that we're on the right side of history. And, you know, gang, it also gives us motivation to share with others why we have put our trust in Christ for salvation. And so it gives us hope, it gives us motivation, it's an encouragement, it's a comfort, it's uh, the sort of thing that gives us confidence that God is in control. Okay? There is no greater authority for the, or there's no greater um, testimony to the authority of Scripture than fulfilled prophecy. Okay? And so uh, um, it's fun to uh, dive into the book. We're going to do just that. Let me pray for us, and we'll get rolling. Lord, thanks for the uh, privilege of coming together um, as a group of people called by your Son, uh, not only to follow hard after him, but to look expectantly for his return. And so we do just that, and we um, say with the Apostle John, um, Lord, come quickly, because we know that, Father, uh, the opportunity to be with your Son forever is uh, something that we've staked our lives on, the opportunity to do that. We've put our trust in him, and uh, the fact that he is coming back uh, is something that gives us confidence, and it also gives us boldness to tell others about him. And so uh, be with us tonight, Father. Um, may you guard me from error. And may we speak truth in a way that motivates us uh, to share with others. So thanks for this time. Thanks for these friends who have uh, given up a, 
uh, valuable Thursday night to come learn more about your word. Amen. Okay, so before I begin, I always try to show you some books, okay? And so if you're interested in the book of Revelation and you go, hey, is there a commentary out there that's written for someone who is a lay person that, you know, uh, is coming to the book of Revelation for the first time? This book is written by Dr. Charles Ryrie, uh, former DTS prof. Uh, author of the Ryrie Study Bible. You may have heard of that. Um, it's simply called Revelation. It's in the Every Man's Bible Commentary series, and it is a great way to read through the book. I've read it cover to cover, and uh, um, it will uh, help you as you read through the book of Revelation. And it's also thin. I love it because it's thin, but it covers all the basics in there. I'll give you a great overview. R-Y-R-I-E, Charles Ryrie, R-Y-R-I-E, okay? The next book I would show you is uh, written by a guy named Mark Hitchcock. Mark is a pastor of a church in Edmond, Oklahoma, and so he's in the trenches dealing with, you know, the same sort of stuff you're dealing with day in and day out, okay? Um He's an adjunct professor at Dallas Seminary, and he's kind of heir to the line of uh, Dr. Pentecost and Dr. Wolverd, who are now both home with the Lord and who have, um, you know, been great uh, war horses uh, dealing with prophecy, revelation, the things to come. And Mark's kind of the heir to that. I found out the other uh, day when I was teaching revelation to uh, our staff that Kyle Thompson, one of our elders, is a friend of Mark Hitchcock's. They were uh, in high school and college together. They were workout buddies. And so he, you know, I brought these same books to show the staff, and he went, huh, I know Mark. And so uh, um, this is a great book. It's not a verse-by-verse study of the book of Revelation, but it's an overview of all the end times uh, things. And so... You know, if you want to go a little deeper, if you want to go have something that's still written for the average student of the Word, um, Mark Hitchcock's book, The End, is a great study. Okay? This one would be a great thing to have in your library. I've got a hard copy, and I've got it on my um, iPad uh, digitally. Uh, This is Dr. Walford's commentary. Uh, He was former president of Dallas Seminary for a long time. And this is his commentary on the book of Revelation. It is something that is accessible to a layperson. Okay, so don't be scared off that it's written by a seminary professor or seminary president, uh, but it is a great overview on a verse-by-verse basis of the book of Revelation. Uh, This is John Walvoord, W-A-L-V-O-O-R-D, Walvoord. Uh, W-A-L-V-O-O-R-D, Walvoord, okay? Uh, The book's just called Revelation. So we had Revelation by Dr. Ryrie, uh, Revelation by Dr. Walvoord, The End by Mark Hitchcock, and then the final one is really the edgiest one, and it's one of my favorites. It's called The Footsteps of the Messiah. It's written by a guy named Arnold Fruchtenbaum, And uh, he's a Messianic Jew. 
he has the same approach to Revelation that Watermark does, um, which is pre-trib, pre-mill. We'll talk about that in just a minute. Okay? Um, but he has a great Old Testament perspective and goes to a ton of the Old Testament scriptures to help us understand the book of Revelation. You cannot understand Revelation without knowing some of your Old Testament. Okay? And so this is called The Footsteps of the Messiah by Arnold Fruchtenbaum. He's got some uh, great ideas that I've not seen anywhere else. Uh, Dr. Wolverd cites him. Uh, Mark Hitchcock cites him. He's just an excellent, uh, you know, Messianic Jewish scholar of the scriptures. Uh, <laughs> yeah, easy for me to say. Uh, Fruchtenbaum, F-R-U-C-H-T-E-N-B-A-U-M. Fruchtenbaum, F-R-U-C-H-T-E-N-B-A-U-M. Okay, so there are some books... And I, I would rank them in just that order in terms of ease of uh, uh, understanding and whatnot. Dr. Ryrie's first, then the end for a great overview, Dr. Wolverd's commentary, and then Arnold Fruchtenbaum's commentary. Okay? And one of these days, I've actually written a little introductory study guide to the book of Revelation that's designed for people who are coming to the book um, for the first time. And so I just gave it to our residents um, this past Monday, and uh, they're going to help me proofread it and, you know, tweak it and make it better and that sort of thing. And so in the next couple of months, I'm going to have a little introductory study guide that will be available for free. That's the best thing about it. Um, it will be free as a PDF. And if you're interested in getting that, email me and you know, in a couple of months or so. Don't hold me to that. Um, but um, I'll be happy to share that with you because I've written it for just this class, okay? Any class I'm teaching at Watermark on the book of Revelation, that's who I want to share it with. I wrote it using iBooks author. There are lots of pictures. The font's big. And so, you know, it's an easy read. It's about 180 pages, but you can read it in a lot faster than it would sound like, Okay. But it covers the book from start to finish, okay? The book of Revelation from start to finish. And so um, um, if you're interested in that, you're welcome to email me and I'll send one to you. Okay, so let's start with where Watermark starts on uh, the book of Revelation. That's in its doctrinal statement. It has a little section on the end times. I pulled out just this one. There's actually section 12 also deals with some of the end times things. But in the interest of time, let's just focus on this. And so Watermark says that we believe in the personal, imminent, that's a key word, coming of the Lord Jesus Christ for the church. This event, commonly called the rapture, will be followed by great tribulation on the earth and will culminate in the return of Christ to earth to set up his millennial kingdom. There's some scriptures for you to look at, um, but this is what Watermark believes. Watermark would be categorized as a pre-trib, pre-mill sort of church, okay? So what does that mean? Well, we're dealing with uh, a couple of things. The rapture, that's what the pre-trib has reference to, and we're also dealing with the second coming. That's what pre-mill relates to. 
And before I go any further, let me just say that uh, um, I, as a teacher of the book of Revelation, put my stake in the ground on the fact that Christ is coming back. And so it is on the uh, second coming where I say I stand firm on that. And everything else I hold loosely, okay? Because there's lots of different views of everything else. But the fact that Christ is coming back, we put our stake in the ground on that, okay? Um, And so let's look at the different uh, um, possibilities here. Now, with respect to the rapture, there are three primary views. Um, You know, if I counted all the views, there are probably, you know, 10 or 15. But the three primary views are that the rapture happens at the before the tribulation period. And I guess I better make sure that we're all on the same page about the word rapture. Don't let me assume something that you may not quite understand. That simply refers to the removal of the church from this earth. If you read 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17, it talks about how um, the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive will be caught up with him. That's where the word uh, rapture actually comes from. Um, it comes from the Latin word that translates the Greek word harpazo that simply means caught up. Okay? And so the rapture is the removal of the church from the earth to be with Christ forever. Okay? We all good on the, the word rapture? Remember I said that there's a key word about that, and that was the idea that it is imminent. And that simply means that there is no prophetic event that has to be fulfilled before the rapture occurs. Okay, so if you're asked the question, is the second coming imminent, you'd have to say no, because we believe that the second coming occurs after this period of time that we think is seven years long called the tribulation, that time of great tribulation on the earth that was spoken of in the uh, uh, doctrinal statement. Okay? And so three primary rapture views. One is that it happens before the tribulation period, obviously called the pre-tribulational rapture. One is that it actually happens at the midpoint Right in the middle of that seven-year period, um, it's called the mid-trib or mid-tribulation rapture. And then the final primary view is that it occurs at the end of the tribulation period. And uh, that's a view that says that, hey, we go up in the clouds, we meet the Lord, and we come right back with him at the second coming. Okay? And there are all sorts of reasons why I believe in and watermark espouses a pre-tribulational rapture view. But in the interest of time, if you have questions about that, I, I would love to discuss that with you, show you scriptures, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, but we're going to um, hold th- those sort of questions until after we're done tonight or until another uh, meeting. Okay? So three primary views of the rapture. Pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, Watermark ascribes to a pre-tribulational view that Christ comes and gets his church uh, before the rapture and keeps the church from going through the rapture. Okay, and are you with me when I say church? We're talking about 
all the believers from the day of Pentecost, uh, where the Holy Spirit came upon uh, uh, the believers, okay, and then from that point on, believers had been indwelled by the Holy Spirit when they put their trust in Christ. Um, you, you can read about that in Acts 2. And from that time on until the removal of the church, that is what constitutes the church. Those are the church age believers. Okay, I saw a question back here. Yeah, I meant tribulation. Sorry, thanks for correcting me on that. Taken up before the tribulation. The rapture is the event where the Lord calls his church home. You know, the church is known as the bride of Christ. Okay, and it makes sense that. Um, the Lord, as the groom, would not let his bride go through the wrath that will characterize the seven years of the rapture. Yes, ma'am. Sorry, I'm totally confused here. So the rapture happens before the tribulation. Correct. Okay. Okay. And then when we say pre-trib, we're talking about the rapture. When we say pre-mill, we're talking about the second coming of Christ. If you go read 1 Thessalonians 4, um, it talks about meeting Christ in the air and that he doesn't physically return to the earth. But the second, if you compare, if you go read 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17, and compare it with Revelation 19, verses 11 through 21, I think a fair-minded reading of those passages says that, hey, these are two very different events. In one, the Lord comes and meets us in the air. In the other one, he physically returns to earth as the conquering king riding the white horse accompanied by the armies of heaven. Okay? So are we good on the difference between the rapture and the second coming? Those are really key points. And so which one do we put uh, our stake in the ground on? The second coming, yeah. He is coming back, and when he comes in the second coming, he is physically returning to earth to uh, serve as and to complete the tribulation and to vanquish all his opponents at that time. He'll be accompanied by the armies of heaven. If I don't uh, keep um, preaching too much, we'll actually get to Revelation 19, and you'll see that he will um, physically conquer uh, the opponents, um, they're typically called earth dwellers, okay, that are opposing Christ at that time. And, um, you know, the Revelation 19 passage makes it clear that even though we accompany him, he's going to be the one who does all the fighting, okay? All right, so three views of the second uh, of the rapture, three views of the second coming are... Hang, Hold that question for just a second. Uh, Premillennial view, that is that the second coming occurs before um, a period of a thousand years known as the millennial kingdom. Okay? Uh, another uh, possible view is a postmillennial view that the, tribu- or that the um, millennial kingdom occurs and then Christ returns after. Um, the uh, completion of the millennial kingdom. That's called the post-millennial view. And the amillennial view 
ah simply means not. In other words, that, hey, there really isn't a millennial millennium or that it's a symbolic millennium. Um, most of the ah millennialists would say that we're in the millennium right now. And I go, well, have you read the newspapers lately? And if this is the millennial kingdom, then yikes, this isn't very much fun, okay? And so we can talk about those offline uh, about the scriptural support for each one, but Watermark ascribes to the pre-tribulation rapture view. Christ is going to come for his church before the seven-year period of tribulation, and then we ascribe to the uh, pre... I said that wrong. We ascribe to the pre-tribulation view of the rapture. Christ is coming before his church before, for, for his church before the uh, tribulation, and then we ascribe to the premillennial view of the second coming that it will occur before this thousand-year period in which Christ is going to reign physically on earth, um, ruling on the throne of David. Okay? All right, so I've thrown a ton at you. And so stay with me on this, okay? Uh, but if you can separate rapture from second coming and know that Watermark ascribes to the pre-trib view of the rapture, the pre-mill view of the second coming, then you've got it, okay? And we, we can build from there, all right? Okay, so now I want to open your Bibles to Daniel 9. Okay, so if I were to ask you, well, where do we get the idea that the tribulation period is seven years long. And can you show me that in the book of Revelation? You would go, well, you're a lawyer, and so you ask trick questions, okay? And so um, bottom line is that it's probably not even in the book of Revelation, and you would be correct. Because the uh, rapture does... I'm sorry, the... uh, um, um, nowhere in the book of Revelation does it say that uh, the tribulation period will last for seven years. We get that from Daniel 9. And it uh, is found in Daniel's uh, vision of the 70 weeks. And so if you'll turn to um, chapter 9, I'm going to just walk you through this right quick. Daniel's in captivity in Babylon, okay? And it's interesting to compare Daniel and John. Both of them were in captivity when they got these visions. Uh, one is the greatest prophetic vision in the Old Testament. That's what we're reading in Daniel. The other is the book of Revelation. They're both in captivity, Another interesting fact is that both are described, Daniel in uh, three times in the book of Daniel, and John several times in the uh, gospel of John, are described as men beloved by God. You know, John is described as the, the disciple that Jesus loved. 
And is it any surprise that the greatest prophetic utterances given uh, by God to man would be given to men that he loves? Okay, faithful men that even though they're in captivity, and you had to sit there and think, you know, John's towards the end of his life. He goes into exile at a, um, sometime in the 90s, okay? And so if he was 17 or 18 when Jesus was crucified in AD uh, 33 or so, then, you know, think 60 years later, he's in exile and he's being forced to work in the mines on the island of Patmos when he gets this vision uh, and the Holy Spirit reveals and Christ himself reveals the prophecy that becomes the book of Revelation. And so, gang, we never know what God is doing behind the scenes in the midst of our pain and difficult circumstances. We just don't know. And so um, that's why part of the book of Revelation is all about persevering to the end and remaining faithful because God is always at work. You know, that's something that Wagner continues to return to, that, hey, you don't know what he's doing behind the scenes, but you can trust that he's at work. I come down to a little paradigm that I share with my summit guys frequently where I say that, you know, in circumstances where I don't understand what's going on, I fall back on three facts. One is that God is good. The second is that his plan is good. And the final one is that I can trust him because I've trusted him before. And his way is always better than my way. God is good. His plan is good. And we can trust him. And so John, sitting there on the island of Patmos, you know, has this great vision that's the book of Revelation, okay? Uh, and then Daniel's in the same shape on, uh, in exile in Babylon, okay? And look what Daniel's doing when he gets this, um, Look at verse 17, Daniel 9, 17. Now therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servants and to his pleas for mercy and for your own sake, O Lord. Make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. Incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes. See our desolations and the city that is called by your name. Uh, for we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. And he says... Lord, forgive us and delay not for your own sake because your city and your people are called by your name. And look what happens while he's praying. He says, while I was, this is verse 20 now, while I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people of Israel uh, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God, uh, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, I think that's uh, a reference to the archangel Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me, saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. And look at this. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out. So it was after Daniel started praying that God sent Gabriel to come to him. And he says, And I have come to tell it to you, why? For you are greatly loved. Two other times he's described as being greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. And now here's the vision. It says, Seventy weeks are decreed about your people 
in your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in the everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place. Okay? And so the Hebrew there literally says 77s. And so how do we understand that? Well, if it was literally 70 weeks, we'd go, all right, so 70 weeks, you know, that 70 weeks has obviously come and gone many times, and these things have not happened. Uh, Would you agree with me that we have not um, finished transgression, that we've not put an end to sin? Okay? Um, So those things haven't happened. But if you understand that, as 70 weeks of years, then you start to get a a picture that, hey, that's 490 years. If you look at your chart, you can see how um, I've broken this up into 69 weeks right here, and then the 70th week is what is the seven-year tribulation. It's the 70th week of Daniel's 70 weeks. Okay, and where do I get that? Well, let's keep reading. Verse 25, chapter 9, verse 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one. Okay, so when did the word to rebuild Jerusalem go out? Well, that's actually documented in Scripture. If you go read Nehemiah, which is just about where we are on the journey, Okay, and we may have even actually already read it, but uh, we're right there in Nehemiah. And Ezra comes back and rebuilds the temple after the Babylonian captivity, and then Nehemiah comes back and rebuilds the walls of the city. He's given permission to do so by a Persian king named Artaxerxes. You can read all this in Daniel 2, I'm sorry, in Nehemiah 2, verses 5 through 8. That decree is actually dated in history, and it occurred in 444 B.C. Okay, so that begins the clock running on this, excuse me, the first 69 weeks. Well, where do I get that idea? Okay, let's keep reading. Okay, so we know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince... There shall be seven weeks, and then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moats, but in a troubled time. And so if you add together um, seven weeks and 62 weeks, you get 69 weeks. And for the math majors in here, you can probably do it in your head that 69 times 7 is 483. Okay, I was an English major, so I had to go get the calculator out and, you know, uh, calculate that. So 483 years, there's a little book that's called The Chronological Aspects of the Life of Christ. It's written by uh, a Dallas Seminary professor who's now dead. He's home with the Lord. He knows whether his theories are right or not, okay? Um, But it's written by a a guy named Dr. Harold Honer. Dr. Honer was the uh, chairman of the New Testament department of DTS. Uh, He's also the author of the best commentary on the book of Ephesians. But this little volume called The Chronological Aspects of the Life of Christ um, does things like attempting to calculate um, when was Christ, what year was Christ crucified. 
And it also deals with the calculation of Daniel's 70 weeks vision. And when did it start? And, um, you know, when did the 69 weeks end? And that sort of thing. Okay? And so he's done all the math to show that it actually works out in history that uh, just as Daniel said from um, the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks and then uh, 62 weeks, that's 69 weeks, Uh, the coming of an anointed one, what does that sound like? When was Christ hailed as the coming king? It's something we just celebrated a little while ago. What's that? Not Passover. Palm Sunday, yeah. You know, the palm branches and crying out Hosanna and, you know, um, make way for uh, the, the coming king in accordance with what the Psalms say. I think it's Psalm 118. Um, so Dr. Honer's worked it out and can show that from 444 B.C. And we're going, okay, so did the years really match up? Well, the Jews had a different calendar. They used a 30-day month. They didn't have, you know, the um, having to count on your knuckles January, February, March, April to figure out whether it's 30 or 31 days. They dealt with a 30-day month, and Dr. Honer has calculated all this, and he takes it right up to A.D. 33 at the triumphal entry. So that's the conclusion of the 69 weeks. Yes, ma'am. Okay, 70 weeks, don't think 70 weeks, think 70 weeks of years. Because the, the Hebrew says 70 sevens, okay? And the context of chapter 9 is all about years uh, because it's dealing with, uh, uh, it starts off, the chapter starts off with um, Daniel discussing the years of captivity Uh, There was a uh, prophecy by Jeremiah that the Jews would be in captivity for 70 years. And that came true. They were in captivity from 586 B.C. to approximately 516 B.C. Okay? And so instead of thinking 70 weeks, that's just what the vision's called. Okay? But it's weeks of years. And so 70 weeks times um, 7 years is 490, 490 years. And the reason we don't think that it's 70 weeks is for just the the reason you indicated that, hey, 70 weeks has already gone by and none of this has happened. Okay? And so, does that answer your question? (laughs) That's nervous laughter. Okay. Each day of each week equals one year. And so each week equals seven years. And so seven years times 70 is 490 years. Does that help? Okay, and then what about 490 years times Okay, and so if you calculate in accordance with the Jewish calendar from 444 B.C. to 33 A.D., that equals 483 years. Okay. Now, the math, for, for our thinking, the math doesn't quite equate. But we're thinking 
365-day years, okay? We can't think like that because we have to think like a Jewish calendar would think, if Jewish calendars think. Um, And so you've got 69 weeks, and then there's a gap. And let me show you where the gap is, okay? Keep reading. After 69 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off. So when, when did that happen? Who was the anointed one? Yeah, the crucifixion. So the anointed one being cut off is a reference to the crucifixion. Okay? Remember, this is Daniel prophesying in, you know, roughly, you know, 520, 530 B.C., long before the crucifixion. Okay? After the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And then, listen to this, and the people, I'm in verse 26 of chapter 9, and the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. We know when that happened in history. When did that happen? Anybody know? A.D. 70, exactly. The Roman forces under Titus came in, the Roman legions under Titus, who was later uh, an emperor, uh, came in and destroyed the city, you know, destroyed Temple Mount, destroyed the temple, etc. Okay, so we know that that happened in history. And so that underscores that there is a gap between the completion of the 69th week, which ended with the triumphal entry of Christ into Jerusalem. There's a gap, which I think, and which... Uh, conservative scholars thinks equates to the church age. That's one of the reasons that the church age is sometimes called the great parenthesis in history. It was a mystery to the Old Testament times. They didn't know about the church, okay? But the church age, that's why I've got it up here in this big parenthesis here. You can go read Ephesians 3, 1 through 10. We don't know how long the church age is going to last. That's why we call it a gap. Okay, the rapture will be the thing that terminates the church age. But that's not the trigger event of the tribulation period. Okay, so hang in there with me. We're going to read about what is the trigger event. Okay, so the people of the prince who is to come, and you go, okay, so who's that prince? Okay, well, I'm going to suggest to you that it is the prophesied Antichrist, okay? We're going to look at that in the Gospel of John, but I think that's who that prince who is to come. It's different from the anointed prince, okay? We're talking about two different princes. The people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end will come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. Okay, and verse 27 is hugely important for the book of Revelation. And then it, it starts, and he, who's he? That's the prince who is to come. I think that's a reference to the Antichrist. Shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. The many is a reference to Israel. And so the trigger event of the seven-year tribulation period is not the rapture, but it's the um, covenant, the treaty, the peace treaty that the Antichrist um, executes with Israel. And think about it. 
if someone were able to bring peace to the Middle East, would not the entire world rise up and hail that guy as someone to be followed? That plays perfectly into Satan's plan to put his guy into power. Okay, and we're going to read it, and we're going to talk about that in the book of Revelation. All right, so are you with me on that? Okay, so the trigger event of the tribulation period is the covenant that the Antichrist will execute with the uh, um, nation of Israel. And it says one week. And so we get the idea that the tribulation period is seven years long from the fact that it is Daniel's 70th week of years. Okay, did everybody get that? We've, we've completed 69 weeks. We've had a gap for the church age. And then we have the final week uh, completes the age of God dealing with the Jews and his people. And that is the 70th week, and that is the origin of our idea that the tribulation period is seven years long because it's a week of years. So when you're saying the trigger event, you're saying that's when the tribulation starts? Yes. Okay. That's when, you know, think about the, as if there were a big uh, countdown clock for the tribulation. You know, it starts running when the Antichrist executes a treaty with Israel. Okay? And we can just see how that scenario could happen even in our lifetime. You know, um, you know, let's say Iran goes crazy and it attempts to nuke Israel, and then someone rises up and negotiates peace uh, for the entire Middle East. Can't you just see how the world is going to fall at his feet and say, this is a man we should follow? Yikes. I mean, we can see how that's starting to come together potentially, okay? You know, the one thing we know about the um, Christ's return, okay, is that nobody knows the date or the hour. And so we don't want to be a people who's saying, this is the time. So we don't know. Hey, uh, the Apostle John thought the Lord was coming back in his day. Paul thought he was coming back. Okay? But I can guarantee you one thing. We are 2,000 years closer today than John was. Okay? And so the Lord, some generation is going to be the generation when um, Jesus decides to uh, return. And so our job today is to be ready. Okay? Okay? All right, so that's Daniel's vision of 70 weeks. Let me uh, um, finish the, the reading of verse 27 because the rest of it's just as important. Okay, and so I think part of the, the peace treaty that will be enacted will allow the Jews to reestablish worship at a rebuilt tribulation temple. You know, you can read stuff on the Internet that says that, hey, they've got all the things ready to go with a new temple. And they're going to be permitted to once again offer uh, sacrifices and offerings. But then look what it says happens. And for half the week, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. I think that's a reference to what happens at the midpoint of the tribulation. Okay? 
And so at the middle of the three and a half years, I've got it marked up here. Um, it's called the Abomination of Desolation. You can see it refers to Daniel 9.27 for scriptural support. And then the Lord himself, Jesus himself, uh, talks about when he's asked by uh, his disciples in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 and 25. Uh, he's sitting on, on the Mount of Olives across from the Cadron Valley uh, to looking at uh, the temple. And they come to him and say, you know, hey, Lord, what are going to be the signs of your coming back in the end of the age? And then he gives them the Olivet Discourse. And in Matthew 24, 15, let's look at what it says. Jesus says, So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, which is what we just read, uh, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea ought to get the heck out of Dodge. Okay? Um, now go back to uh, um, Daniel 9.27. And so this is what he's talking about. And for half the week you shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And uh, here's the part about the abomination of desolation. And on the wing of abominations comes one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. And so what does that mean? Well, at the midpoint of the tribulation, I think the Antichrist is going to erect an image of himself, and he's going to demand worldwide worship of the image and of himself. Okay? And you can read in Revelation 13. Well, uh, if I'll stop uh, talking about Daniel, we'll get there. And we'll... Um, We'll see how um, the, uh, his false prophet is given the power to um, allow the image to speak and um, requires everyone to bow down and worship it. And if they refuse to do that, then they're going to be killed. Um, the last three and a half years of the tribulation period will be a period of the greatest anti-Semitism and uh, uh, persecution of those who have trusted in Christ in history. Okay? So that is the abomination of desolation. And that's where we get the idea that um, the tribulation period is seven years long. All right? So let's keep moving now. Let's go to the uh, book of... Uh, I'm going to skip over a couple of these. You can read these quotes. I use Revelation 1.19 as the key verse for the book. And uh, go look at it. Turn to Revelation one nineteen. Write, therefore, the things you've seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. The reason I use it as the key verse for the book is that I think that you can equate the things that John has seen. He has a vision he describes in chapter 1 of the risen Christ. And so the things that he's seen um, is represented by chapter 1. And then John is a pastor, and he has been pastoring um, and establishing churches all over Asia uh, based out of Ephesus. 
Okay, and so he is pastoring the churches that he addressed this letter to. He may not have been directly uh, serving in each one of those cities, but he likely visited all the seven cities that he wrote the book of Revelation to. Okay, and so chapters two and three in the book of Revelation are all about, uh, they're actually um, letters, if you will, from Christ to each one of these churches. And so chapters 2 and 3 are the things that are because those are the things that are taking place right there in John's day. And then finally, those that are to take place after this, I think refers or can be understood to uh, cover chapters 4 through 22, which I take to be the future things in the book of Revelation that have not yet happened. Okay? And so that little verse to me gives you a great outline of what's going on in the book. Okay? And so in chapter 1, you go, all right, so where's this vision of Christ? Well, look in chapter 1. John hears a voice. He's told actually to write what he sees in a book and send it to the seven churches. Uh, That's in verse 11. Verse 12, he says, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. Okay? I think he had a vision of the risen Christ. What was Jesus' favorite description of himself in the Gospels? Anybody know? Son of man. Yeah, exactly. He used it over 80 times in the Gospels. You know, that was our key word for the uh, Gospel of Luke, Son of Man. And so this is a picture of the risen Christ. John has a vision of him. Uh, Seven things are emphasized. That's a number that's repeated a lot in the book of Revelation. But what's really um, the way that Christ is described is as a judge. And we see that he's a judge of the entire earth. He's a judge of the churches that um, he's writing to. He evaluates them. And you can see at least eight things throughout the book of Revelation that he judges. Okay? So that verse, I think, gives you a little outline of what's going on in the book. Um, Dr. Walford's quote about uh, chapters 2 and 3 I love Many of the problems and evils that exist in the church today are a direct outgrowth of the neglect of Christ's uh, instruction to the seven churches. Okay, And if you read the letters to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3, you go, man, that sounds just like some of the things that the church is going through. The church today... You know, do we have churches that have left their first love? Absolutely. Do we have churches that are suffering? Do we have churches that are uh, tolerating evil in their midst? Do we have churches that are tolerating or permitting false teachers? Do we have churches that are um, acting like they're asleep and, you know, they think they're doing great, but they're really not? Do we have churches that are being faithful? Absolutely. I hope Watermark is one of those. And finally, do we have churches that are lukewarm, which is uh, a way of thinking about the church at Laodicea. And so the things that are going on in those early churches are 
directly analogous to and happening today in churches that make up the big C church. And, you know, when I talk about church, you know, we have a tendency to think building. But churches are simply collections of people. And so as I think through the churches, the seven churches, and what's going on in those letters, you know, I look at myself and go, hey, you know, on any one given day, I can be any one of those seven things. I can be lukewarm. I can, you know, act as if I've turned away from my first love. I can um, actually suffer. I can um, tolerate and not speak up when I ought to speak up uh, when people are tolerating evil. Okay? And so uh, I love chapters 2 and 3. Here are the seven churches. You can see John, uh, you can see down in the lower left corner right here, the uh, island of Patmos where he was exiled, right off the coast from Ephesus where John was based. And you can see how he could have easily walked. And the, the letters are organized. Uh, it starts with Ephesus, then it goes to Smyrna, up to Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And it's kind of like a little spear point, if you will. And you can see how John could have easily have walked or ridden from church to church. Okay, um, here's a way to think about these letters. You can compare and contrast the letters in chapters 2 and 3 on the basis of five things. One is how they uh, describe Christ. And the description of Christ typically, in all but one case, is drawn from uh, John's description of his vision of Christ in chapter 1. And the key thing to remember is that the way Christ is described relates to um, what's going on in that particular church. So Smyrna was suffering, and Christ describes himself in that, at the beginning of that letter as the first and the last the one who died and came back to life. And what greater uh, hope do you have in the midst of suffering than you've put your faith in one who's conquered death? And so the way Jesus is described in each one of these letters relates to what's going on in that church. Okay? And you all can work that out on your own, but I've given you here something that is just, again, a, a mnemonic device I don't know if that's the right description of it, but it's something that I've tried to alliterate, a word that helps me remember what's going on in each church. Okay, so erring Ephesus, the church that had left its first love, suffering Smyrna, um, permissive Pergamum, tolerating Thyatira that was tolerating evil in its midst, uh, sleepy Sardis that needed to wake up and realize, take a hard look at itself and realized that it wasn't nearly as good as it thought it was. And then faithful Philadelphia. You see, as you read through that, this, um, well, let me hold that thought. Faithful Philadelphia, and then finally, Laodicea is described as a lukewarm church. Okay? And as you compare and contrast these letters, um, besides the depiction of Christ, each one receives a commendation except um, one church, and that's the church at Laodicea. And then each church receives a rebuke except two churches, Smyrna and Philadelphia. 
And then finally, each, uh, I'm sorry, uh, next to last, each church receives an exhortation from Christ. And then finally, a promise is made to each church, to the ones who overcome. Okay? And you've got to ask yourself, well, who are the overcomers? Is it all people who have trusted in Christ? Um, there are definitely scholars who take that view. Um, I think it's more likely that the overcomers are the ones who persevere in faithfulness to the end. And you can see the things that they are promised. Okay? So chapters 2 and 3 are all about what's happening there in John's day and age. And um, it gives us a great overview of the problems that the church would face down through um, history. And it speaks to us today because all these things are going on in churches across America and around the world. Okay? All right. Um, the, um, they're all exhorted. Um, all but uh, one is commended. That was Laodicea was not commended. And uh, um, two of them did not receive a rebuke, Smyrna and Philadelphia. Okay? But, you know, the, the bottom line is use a chart like this to fill in um, what you read in each one of those letters because that will help cement in your own mind what's going on in each one of those letters. And so I've simply given you a way to study each one of the letters. Okay, And i got to tell you, there are study Bibles out there that have done this for you. But don't do that. <laughs> don't rely on somebody else. It won't stick. Go do your own work and study the letters yourself. All right. Okay, so what does Christ want the church to be today? Well, he wants it to be patiently and enduring in its love and its witness for Christ. And he wants it to be faithful in suffering even to the point of death. And some churches are experiencing that today, some believers around the world. He wants it to be spiritually discerning and not, to not uh, um, tolerating uh, false teaching or evil in its midst, not misled by that. He wants it to be spiritually alive and walking with Christ. He wants it to hold fast to biblical teaching like the church at Philadelphia did. And then finally, he wants it to be useful and in um, constant fellowship with Christ. You know, that's the thing uh, about uh, Laodicea. The Lord says, hey, I wish you were hot or cold, uh, but because you're lukewarm, I'm going to spit you out. And some people uh, say, well, um, really the best state is hot, and if you're cold, that means that you're bad, but uh, that's okay. I don't think that's the way to look at that. I think what the Lord's saying there is that things that are a hot drink on a cold day is useful. Okay? A hot cup of coffee on even a warm day sometimes can be useful. A cold drink on a uh, hot day is useful. But a lukewarm drink isn't very useful ever. Okay? And so God wants us to be useful. He wants us, we've put our trust in Christ. Uh, he's writing to the church at Laodicea. The church is filled with believers. And so he's exhorting them to be useful. That's what he wants us to be today. All right, so in this little chart, 
I've tried to give you an overview of the end time. So I'm going to leave this up here as we talk through the rest of the book. Okay? And so we're all the way up to chapter 4. And look how chapter 4 begins. Remember um, in our little outline verse 119, we said that um, and uh, the last part was uh, and those uh, things that shall take place after this. And we said that it referred to chapters 4 through 22. Well, look how chapter 4 begins. After this, ding, 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 says, hey, these are the future things. Okay? And so after this um, starts the discussion and description of the things that have not yet happened in history. We look through the uh, halls of history and we can't find things that match up with all the things that are described here. Okay, We can find some things that seem like it, but not something that matches with everything. And so um, chapters 4 and 5, uh, and really 4 through the end of the book, there are a couple of patterns for you to look for. Okay, The first pattern is one that you ought to expect, and that is that God operates on the basis and on the principle of grace before judgment. And so we see God giving people on earth, even during this terrible time of tribulation, chance after chance to come to him, to accept his free gift of salvation. Okay? So look for that idea of uh, grace before judgment. And where you'll particularly see it is that there is a grace interruption between the the description of the sixth and seventh seal judgment in between the 6th and 7th trumpet judgments. Well, what are those? Well, from chapters 6 through 16, those chapters are organized around three series of seven judgments each. Okay, and we'll take a look at those. They're called the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, and the bowl judgments. And you can see right up here, it's going to be hard to see that red thing, but you can see it. So I've put the seal judgments happening... Uh, possibly in the first half of the tribulation period. You know, look at the chart and you can see how my, um, the rapture happens outside, but the big trigger event is the peace treaty with Israel in Daniel 9.27. And then here's the midpoint of the tribulation. Uh, I've used Oscar as my um, abomination of desolation. Doesn't that fit? Okay, it'll be some sort of image. Uh, but... You know, I've tried to figure out, okay, so when do these different sets of judgments happen? Three sets, seven judgments each, uh, called the seal, trumpet, and bowl judgments. And this is my best guess, and you can tell it's really a guess because I don't know if the trumpet judgments are in the first half or in the second half or part in the first half and part in the second half. Uh, I think at least that is true. Um, And so, you know, one of the challenges of being... uh, a student of the book of Revelation is trying to figure out how does the chronology flow. Um, God doesn't tell us exactly how it flows. And this is a guess. If we get up to heaven and um, I'm wrong about this, I will give you your money back. Okay? All right? So come see me. I'll refund it. All right? Um, So this is my best guess, trying to put something together to help you have a skeletal framework to 
work with as you study the book of Revelation from here on. Okay? And so, um, in chapters 4 and 5, we start uh, off on a grace basis. Now turn back to uh, um, chapter 4. Chapter 4 focuses on, and this is in verse 1, um, actually verse 2. Um, John's in the Spirit, and he has a uh, vision, or whether he's actually taken to heaven, you know, it's hard to tell. It says, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And so one of the things I would suggest to you about chapter 4 is that it is all about the one seated on the throne. Okay? And so we go, okay, so who is that? Is that the Father? Is it the Son? Well, it's hard to tell from just this because it could be either one. But when you put it together with chapter 5 that focuses on the Lamb who takes the scroll, and we'll talk about that in a second, um, from the hand of the one who sits on the throne, we think that chapter 4 is talking about the Father. Okay? Um, Revelation is sometimes called the Book of Thrones because thrones are mentioned at least 45 times in the book. All right, so 4, about the one who sits on the throne. Chapter 5 is about the Lamb. And so the one who sits on the throne has in his right hand a scroll that's written on the inside and out, and it's sealed with seven seals. And then we have uh, one of the uh, um, first of eight questions in the book of Revelation. This question is, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seal? Okay, and there's uh, weeping and whatnot. Uh, But then uh, one of the elders mentioned in chapter 4 says, hey, don't need to cry because the lamb is worthy. And then in verse 6 of chapter 5, you see the lamb described with four S's. One of the things that is that will bless your socks off is if when you read the book of Revelation, you will have a notebook at your side and you will record everything that it says about Christ. And if you will do that faithfully uh, by the end of chapter 22, you will have an unbelievable picture of who your Savior is. I counted at least 31 things I wrote down about uh, the way it described Christ in chapter 1. And so you want to know who your Savior is? Take the time to record all the things you learn about Christ throughout the book of Revelation. Okay, and so these four S's. So first, the first S is what? Look at verse 6. He sees a lamb, and what's the lamb doing? Standing, okay? And you go, wait, I always picture Jesus seated at the throne at the Father's right hand. Okay, so why is the lamb standing? Why is the lamb standing, Bob? He's got work to do, exactly right. Okay? He's standing because he still has work to do. He's coming back. All right? And then there are three other S's. Slain, we obviously get that. The seven horns. The horn in the uh, Old Testament is oftentimes a picture of strength. 
And so that's my third S, that uh, the lamb is strong. He's someone we can depend on. He's someone we can put our trust in. And then finally, uh, he's described as uh, having seven eyes. Okay, so literally he doesn't have seven eyes. But again, that's a symbolic representation of, I think, his judicial function, his, I use the word, scrutinizing. Okay, so he is scrutinizing um, the entire world. And you go on and you read, and it says uh, um, there are also um, seven spirits of God. And you go, oh, whoa, I thought there was one Holy Spirit. Well, go read Isaiah 11.2, and the Holy Spirit is described as having a sevenfold ministry. Okay, and so when you see the seven spirits of God, just think that that is a colorful description of the Holy Spirit because he has a, a multitude of ministries. Okay? All right, so there's all sorts of other things that we can take about the Lamb there, about the way that he's worthy, um, that, you know, what he's done for us. Um, he's worthy because he ransomed people for God. He made them a kingdom of priests and uh, uh, a kingdom and priests to our God, and he set them up to reign on earth. Okay? Lots of things uh, to learn about Christ uh, throughout chapter 5. All right, so let's jump forward to chapter 6. Chapter 6, the Lamb starts to open the sealed judgments. And that's where we start to have the pouring out of these judgments on earth. Uh, let me see if I can find a... Okay, here's a listing of each one of the different judgments. Okay, so there's seven sealed judgments, then there's seven trumpet judgments, and then there's seven bowl judgments. The sealed judgments are described in chapter 6, and the seventh one is described in chapter 8, verse 1. The bold judgments are described in chapters 8 and 9, and the, I'm sorry, the trumpet judgments are described in chapters 8 and 9, and then the uh, last one is described in chapter 11, verse 15. And then the bold judgments are described in 15, and really they're poured out in chapter 16. And these are God's judgments uh, on the earth and on those people uh, who have refused to trust in Christ, okay? And so here are three words for you to remember about the judgments, okay? My understanding of the judgments is that they are sequential, they're chronological, and they are um, intensifying. And when you read through the judgments, you'll see that the sealed judgments impact a quarter of the world's population. And the trumpet judgments impacts a third. And then finally, the bold judgments, they hit everybody. Okay? We are told that, uh, specifically, that some of the judgments are only poured out on those who have taken the mark of the beast. And um, so... If you go back, um, it's interesting to compare and to contrast uh, these judgments, particularly the trumpet and the bowl judgments, with the plagues uh, that are um, brought on Egypt when God is telling Pharaoh to let my people go. 
Okay, so that's a great study to compare and contrast what's happening in the plagues of Egypt, the plagues on Egypt, with what's happening in the trumpet and the bowl judgments. Okay, in my book, I go through and I compare and contrast each one of those. Okay, so we got the judgments. The judgments were the organizing feature of chapters 6 through 16. And they're the pouring out of three sets of seven judgments each uh, on the earth during this time frame of the last seven years. Yes, sir. Uh huh. Um, that's a great question. Thanks for asking that. Um, because you go, okay, so you said that there's a pattern of grace than judgment. So, I mean, isn't it all just um, if the church is removed and those are all the believers, then there aren't any believers on earth? Well, people are going to come to faith in Christ during the tribulation period. And one of the ways that's going to happen, and uh, uh, we'll look right now at uh, chapter 7. And you see there uh, in verse 4, then 144,000 Jews, 12,000 from each one of the tribes of Israel, are sealed, in other words, protected by God supernaturally, where they can't be killed until his mission for them is done. Okay, And so they're described as servants of God. And so what's the role of a servant of God? What is our mission today? Okay, We're to be and make disciples. We're to tell others about Christ. And so he is sealing these 144,000 people to supernaturally evangelize. Well, let me say that again. He's supernaturally sealing them to evangelize the entire world. Okay? And so, you know, you can read in Matthew that's the, where Christ says the world will be evangelized and then the end will come. So God is going to continue throughout the tribulation period to give people chance after chance to trust in him. And he's going to protect these 144,000 uh, to be his servants to go do that. Okay? Does that answer your question? No, uh, I mean that they uh, become believers after the tribulation begins. And sealed simply means we are sealed with the Holy Spirit, which is uh, we, as part of the church, simply means that um, we are protected so that we cannot lose our salvation. We're permanently indwelled by the Holy Spirit. A seal uh, was a mark of ownership, a mark of protection, and a mark of security. And, you know, these, I don't know how they're going to be sealed, okay? That's way beyond my physics ability. Uh, But they're going to be protected supernaturally so that they can complete the work that God has for them, okay? So that's chapter 7. Chapter 8, we pick up uh, with the last sealed judgment, and we start the trumpet judgments, okay? And then in chapter 9, we see the fifth and sixth Trumpet judgments. And if you read those, you go, now, whoa, that's like something that we've never seen here on earth. Okay? The fifth uh, uh, trumpet is, says that um, 
here comes uh, locusts on earth and they're given power like the scorpions of the earth and they're told not to harm the green grass or not to harm the uh, grass or the green plants or trees, uh, but only those who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads and they're allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. Okay? And you're going, whoa, that's pretty crazy. Um, And so what does all that mean? Well, um, let's look at the sixth uh, trumpet as well. And so there you've got a third of mankind killed. There's uh, mounted troops numbering, uh, that math works out to 200 million. And they've got, uh, uh, they look like horses and heads like horses, uh, or the heads of the horses were like lion's heads, and fire comes out of their mouth. And um, by these plagues, a third of mankind was killed. Okay, and so... Here's what I would say to you about chapters 8 and 9, that they reveal three spiritual realities, okay? And the first is that God is sovereign. He says that they have power for five months, not for six months. He says that they can't harm certain things, and they can't, okay? So God is sovereign even over all this stuff, And he is using this stuff to bring more people to himself. If you go read the fifth seal judgment, the martyrs are asking, how long are we going to have to wait, Lord, uh, for you to avenge us? And um, they're told, well, wait a little while longer until the number of people who who are to give their lives for testimony about me is completed. And you know, gang, that's really the answer to evil today. Okay, so we go, so why doesn't God come back and deal with ISIS right now? Well, God is using uh, what ISIS is doing in ways that we just have no understanding. He is bringing people to faith because of what ISIS is doing. Okay, because of the testimony of those who are being beheaded for their faith in Christ. We don't know what he's doing, uh, but that is a spiritual reality that he is indeed sovereign. The second reality of chapter 9 is that um, there is an unseen spiritual world around us. And I think one of the things that will happen in the tribulation period is that that world will start to be seen a little bit if our understanding is correct about you know who the fifth and sixth trumpets uh, are about. And then the final one, let's look at uh, um, verses uh, 20 and 21 of chapter 9. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. And they didn't repent of their murders or sorceries or sexual immorality or thefts. They basically shook their fist at God and said, how dare you? But you know, there are going to be some people who make a decision that, look, I'm playing for the wrong team here. My team is getting killed, and I need to be a part of the winning team here. I need to be on God's side, not on uh, the Antichrist's side. And so God is using even these terrible judgments to bring more people to himself. I'm going to skip over chapter 10. Um, Chapter 10 is about John being uh, told to, hey, keep prophesying, buddy. In chapter 11, we have the, the original CNN moment. 
we have two witnesses with powers far greater than uh, any powers that have been on earth uh, before. They're powers like Moses and Elijah had, and so some people think they're Moses and Elijah. Maybe they will be. Uh, I think it's more likely that they're simply uh, two guys who come to faith who are uh, um, that God picks to have these amazing powers to again give testimony about himself. Okay, so these two witnesses, I guarantee you there'll be a witness cam on these guys wherever they go. You'll be able to click on the internet and see these guys wherever they are. But they will be allowed to uh, prophesy and to uh, call people to turn to God uh, for three and a half years. It says 1,260 days. I think that their um, um, time on earth will likely be during the first half of the tribulation period. Okay, Because I think at the middle point of the tribulation period, when the Antichrist demands to be worshipped by the world, that he is going to clear the decks of anything that would stand in his way of that. And so these guys will be killed after their prophecy uh, goes on for 1,260 days, which is 42 months times 30 days. Okay, And so um, it's interesting that if you read chapter 11, you see that the only reference to rejoicing in the, uh, in the entire tribulation period is when these two witnesses are killed. Okay? If you look at uh, chapter 11, verse, um, bah, 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 um, verse 9 and 10, you know, they won't let them be buried. Those who dwell on the earth, that's always a code word for those who are opposing God. Uh, here in the book of Revelation, it says, Those who dwell on earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents. It'll be like Christmas uh, because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But then uh, hold on to your hat because after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they'll stand up on their feet and a great fear is going to fall on all who see them. Okay, And they're going to be resurrected and taken up to heaven. And look at what it says. It says that um, uh, then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. Then there's a big earthquake. 7,000 people are killed in Jerusalem. Uh, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Okay, So does that mean that they all believed in Christ? No. It simply means that they acknowledged that they were dealing with something that they rejected, but that was far beyond any power that they had or had seen. Okay? So those are the two witnesses. In chapters uh, 12 and 13, you see a description of seven great players of the end times drama, is what I call them. First, you have a woman. And uh, I think she's described, she's a picture of Israel. And she gives birth uh, um, to a male child who's to rule over all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. I think that's a reference to Christ. The red dragon, that's not hard to figure out. That's uh, a reference to Satan. Uh, The fourth one is Michael, uh, the archangel who wars against Satan in heaven. And then the final one is a little hard, or I'm sorry, the fifth one is a little harder to figure out. Um, The fifth one I pick as the rest of her offspring that's mentioned in verse 17 of chapter 12. 
And then the final two are the beast from the sea and the beast from the earth. And those are references to the Antichrist and the false prophet. Okay? And in chapter 13, it's a fascinating chapter. You can read about uh, how the Antichrist is given power. Uh, Remember, God's still sovereign. He's only allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. Okay? I think that equates to the last half of the tribulation. So from the uh, Oscar time uh, in the midpoint of the tribulation where he breaks the peace treaty with Israel, he demands that there be no more sacrifices, he destroys religious Babylon that we'll talk about in chapter 17, Uh, he erects the abomination of desolation in um, the holy place, and he, I think that's when he'll start requiring people to take the mark of the beast if they want to buy or sell. Okay, If you want to eat, you'll have to take the mark. Um, but people with wisdom will refuse to do that. Okay, And so you can read about that in chapter uh, 13. Uh, the mark of the beast stuff is at the end of chapter 13. Uh, but you can see there that the second beast, the false prophet he's also called, Um, makes an image of the beast, and um, the false prophet is allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. And so, gang, you're going to have to decide uh, if you were to be here on earth, and I don't think you will be, okay? I'm sure hoping we won't be, but if you were, you're going to have to make a decision Who am I going to worship? Okay? Our faith is going to cost us something then. Okay? I don't think we'll be there. All right, so chapter 14. One way to look at chapter 14 is kind of as a little mini summary of the entire end times uh, prophecy. See if you can figure out uh, why I say that. Okay? That's another place where it talks about that... uh, Uh, Verse 6 says, Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. There is going to be worldwide evangelism before Christ comes back. And so no one is going to be able to say, I never had a chance. God is going to give everybody a chance to believe in him, believe in his son, to have a relationship with him through the son. You know, we look back to Christ who has come. During the um, tribulation period, people are going to look forward to the coming Messiah. Okay? All right, chapters 15 and 16, uh, you can read all about the bold judgments. Okay? Uh, Seven of them poured out. One thing to note is... In chapter 17, I'm sorry, chapter 16, verse 17, you see this. It says, The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. What does that remind you of? Christ on the cross. He, he, we were done with sin, and here we're done with judgment on the earth. Okay? During the tribulation period. We'll see one more it is done in the book of Revelation. Chapters 17 and 18 are things that likely are, uh, they fit in the flow thematically, but they don't necessarily fit chronologically. 
And remember how we talked about some of the Gospels. Uh, well, the Gospels are written on a thematic sort of approach, and so they don't necessarily have everything in nice, tidy, chronological order. Well, that's, the same thing's true in uh, the book of Revelation. So chapter 17 concerns the destruction of what we call religious Babylon. Okay, It's known as the great prostitute. Um, it's the apostate church that is basically Christianity without Christ. Okay, And so that is destroyed by the Antichrist. You can look at, um, what is it, uh, uh, verse 16. It says, In the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They'll make her desolate, naked, devour her flesh, and burn her up with fire. And it says, For God has put it in their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And so this false religion, uh, the Antichrist allows to exist. That's why I think that chapter 17 describes something that happens at the midpoint of the tribulation. And so I've put it right here in the destruction of religious Babylon. This apostate system of religion will be done away with by the Antichrist in chapter 17. And then another aspect of the Babylon system, and so think system. Babylon likely will be the headquarters of the Antichrist, but also think, you know, think Washington. When we say Washington, what do we mean? Well, sometimes we might be talking about a city, Washington, D.C., and other times we might be saying, well, today Washington enacted laws that did thus and so. And so it talks about a system of government. And so Babylon is also both a place and a system. And so it has a religious aspect that's dealt with in chapter 17, and it also has a commercial or political aspect that I think um, is destroyed as a part of the um, second coming. Okay, You can read about that in chapter 18. Chapter 19 focuses in on the second coming. I'll just hit the highlights on that. The second coming is described in uh, verses 11 through um, 21, and I challenge you to go compare and contrast those verses with the way Paul describes the rapture in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. Okay, And I think you'll uh, conclude with me that those look like two very different events, and I think that they are. And with that second coming, we will terminate... Uh, the tribulation, uh, it will be the last part of the Armageddon campaign. We always hear about the Battle of Armageddon. Well, don't think battle. Think campaign. It'll likely last several months because it'll take a while for the armies of uh, the world to gather. Okay, and We're told that they gather around the Valley of Megiddo, which is this large valley uh, in Israel also called the Jezreel Valley. Uh, Napoleon described it as one of the great battle sites uh, in the world. Okay, And so think campaign in the, one of the last portions of that campaign. In fact, Dr. Fruchtenbaum describes the eight stages of the Armageddon campaign. Um, and so for the Armageddon campaign, um, think that that's what concludes the um, tribulation period. Okay, and so I've got it marked by the uh, second coming. Uh, then I think there's a little gap. If you go look at Daniel 12, uh, you do the math, and it seems to be that there's approximately a 75-day gap between 
the second coming and the start of this thousand-year millennial kingdom that's described in Revelation 20. Okay, six times in Revelation 20, we're told that um, uh, the millennial kingdom will be a thousand years long. Okay, and so some people try to say, well, it's just a symbolic number. Well, just as Christ literally fulfilled prophecies of his first coming, I think he's going to literally fulfill prophecies of his second coming. And one of those prophecies is that after he returns, he will set up his throne on the uh, set up his reign on the throne of David in the city of Jerusalem, and he'll reign there for a thousand years. You can read that in Revelation 20. Another thing that happens in Revelation 20 is that Satan is bound. Um, the millennial kingdom starts with all believers, uh, but you have a thousand years. Um, I've actually looked at this um, in the population estimates of the world in 1000 AD was uh, about 300 million people uh, were in the world in AD uh, 1000. Uh, the population of the world in um, 2000 was um, anywhere between 6.9 and um, 7, maybe it's 6.5 and 7.2 billion people. And so that's a pretty huge growth in the number of people. I don't know how many people will start the tribulation, but I think that the people who start the tribulation will be survivors who have trusted in Christ of the tribula during the tribulation period. And they will still have mortal bodies, and they will uh, be able to get married and have kids, and they will repopulate the earth during the thousand-year millennial reign of Christ. Okay? That's something we can talk about if you have questions about that. But that, that's my understanding of, uh, of the way the world will be repopulated. I don't know how many people will start the millennial kingdom, but uh, think about it. With a thousand years to repopulate, uh, there's going to be a lot of people left. Okay, by the, the time that the thousand years is ended. But something that's really kind of strange is that at the end of that thousand year period, then Satan is going to be released. You know, you're going to have to ask the Lord why he's doing that. But for some reason, he does. And I think, again, it's to uh, show that despite perfect environment of the millennial kingdom and despite the rule by the perfect ruler, Jesus himself, that the human heart still will reject. And so um, in the description in uh, Revelation 20, look at this, is that uh, when Satan is released, uh, this is chapter 20, um, verse 8. It says, it will come out to deceive the nations... Uh, to gather them for battle. And how many are there? It says their number is like the sand of the sea. You know, so many we can't count. And so those will be the ones that despite living in perfect environment and subject to the rule of the perfect king, will say, I reject that. And will follow after Satan when he's released. Well, that rebellion will be short-lived. And then that sets us up for the great white throne judgment. And that's in chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. I think that judgment is for um, 
unbelievers only. I don't think that uh, believers will be at the great white throne judgment. And if you look at that, what is going to be the standard of judgment? Verse 12 says that uh, books are opened and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And so, gang, you know, John knew how to describe sin. And he doesn't say according to their sins. And I think the reason for that is that Jesus paid the price for the sins of the world. And so sin is not going to be an issue. The question is going to be, um, did you believe in Christ? And then if you did, you stand in his righteousness. But all these folks are going to say, okay, so you rejected Christ. So, you know, the Lord's going to say to them, so tell me what you did. And I've recorded what you did. And how does that stack up with the perfect righteousness of my son? And it's not going to go well for him. And so I think that the issue at the great white throne judgment is going to be their works because they've rejected the offer of Christ, of salvation through Christ. All right, then we only had the new heavens and new earth and new Jerusalem to talk about. Uh, but I think I'll quit now. And let you guys read about that. Um, the New Jerusalem is described as something that is approximately, oh, almost 1,500 miles um, on a side. And so think about that. What, what, is that. what would that be like here in the United States? If you went from Dallas to L.A. and L.A. to Fargo, North Dakota, and Fargo, North Dakota to Washington, D.C., in Washington, D.C., back here, and it's really about 1,380 miles on a side. And think about that extending up the same distance as well. And so that will be the new Jerusalem will have those sort of dimensions. And the way it's described in chapters 21 and 22 makes me want to be there and makes me want you to be there as well. And the way that you can... Uh, ensure that you are there is by simply accepting the grace gift that God offers of salvation through his son. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And so, gang, if you have questions about that, if you want to talk about that, if you have doubts about your salvation or whatnot, I'll be sticking around up here, and I would love nothing better than to talk with you about that. I counted a privilege to, to talk through the book of Revelation with you. Uh, forgive me for running over eight minutes. That's a big no-no at Watermark, at least on the staff, okay? Um, but I hope that you caught, I love studying the book of Revelation. And I want to communicate that passion for studying it. But I don't want our attitude to be that, hey, this is the only thing we ought to study in Scripture, because it's not. All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for instruction, correction, reproof, etc. Okay? But this is something that we can understand, and it should give us hope, and it should motivate us to tell others. And so let me pray for us, and we'll be done. Lord, thanks for the book of Revelation, for uh, the Apostle John, for Daniel, for all those Old Testament saints that uh, were found faithful, 
for the New Testament ones who uh, start, started and spread the church, and for those uh, friends sitting in this room who um, the mantle of responsibility for the church falls on all of our shoulders today. And so, Father, use this time to equip us, uh, use this time to give us hope, use this time to motivate us to tell others uh, about the joy that comes with uh, the salvation of knowing your Son and through him having relationship with you. And so we honor you as the one who sits on the throne, and we are grateful for the privilege of calling you our Heavenly Father. So thanks for these friends, Lord, and thanks for the privilege of uh, studying your word in a free country. Christ's name, amen.